Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father. And if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. Uh, It's so good to be with all of you this evening. Go ahead, if you have your Bibles, and turn to Ephesians chapter uh, 5. That's where we're going to be this evening. Ephesians chapter 5. We are uh, continuing in our Relationships and Sexuality series, and tonight is the message out of all of them that I've been looking forward to the most. Uh, Tonight, we're going to look at Christian marriage. Christian marriage. What is Christian marriage, and how do you get it? Because I know there's many of you, you want to know, how do I get that? Uh, So tonight, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, and this is a feast, I hope you're ready for this. This passage is a complete feast. It's just incredible. So Ephesians chapter five, verse 21. And we're gonna read through the end. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. Verse 28, in this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Verse 31, for this reason, A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is God's word. What is Christian marriage? What is it? Now, in this passage, we see that Christian marriage is three things, and we're going to go through each of these three things, and then we're going to end with how do you actually get those three things. But the first thing that we see in this passage is that Christian marriage is a covenant. It's a covenant. Look back down at verse 31. Uh, Here's what we have. We get a little bit of a refresher of where marriage comes from. It's a quote from Genesis chapter 2. For this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Genesis chapter two, if you remember, Adam has just been created. Uh, Eve has been created out of the side of Adam. They come together and they become one again. Two parts coming back together to become one again. Now, remember all the way back two weeks ago, we had a question that I told you was super important throughout this series. This is maybe one of the primary questions that you need to have going through your mind in this series. And here it is. Is Adam and Eve's marriage an ideal that we should return to or attempt to return to? 
Or is it a good starting point that we should evolve from? This is like the question culturally when it comes to Christian marriage. Is Adam and Eve's marriage the ideal that we should look back to and go, that's what we're trying to get back to in every Christian marriage? Or is it something that we go, that was fine, but it's time to expand what marriage means and go in a different direction? Well, look where Paul goes back. In answering this question, look where Paul goes back. He goes back to Genesis chapter two as the standard and the definition of marriage. And what Paul says about marriage is that it is a covenant and a covenant is not a partnership and it doesn't run on chemistry. What is a covenant? It's not a partnership and it doesn't run on chemistry. What do I mean? I had a call with a young gal probably about a year ago who was working through, she was engaged and she was working through whether she wanted a Christian marriage or not. She thought that maybe that's what she wanted. She had grown up in a Christian house. She'd watched her parents have a marriage that looks something like what we read about here in, in Ephesians chapter five. But her fiance wasn't a believer. And so he, he wasn't convinced that he really wanted a Christian marriage. And so she had this very important question that she asked me on the phone. She said this, why do you call it a covenant and not a commitment? Why do you call it a covenant and not a commitment? And I, I said to her, oh, well, because of the gospel. <laughs> like within that question, why is it a covenant and not a commitment? The entire gospel is essentially wrapped up in the answer to that. See, a partnership is reasonable. A commitment is reasonable. But marriage, a covenant, is completely unreasonable. Look back down to your Bibles, verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, not in a commitment, not into a partnership. They're gonna become one flesh. What? This is a profound mystery. See, there is nothing mysterious about a partnership. It's all drawn up. It's all legal. These are the terms of the partnership. But this, this one fleshness, this is a great mystery. See, our culture says this essentially. How about in a marriage, each person, uh, they maintain their own individual identity. Neither of them tries to change the other. They keep their own personal brand. And the other one can act sort of like a consultant, like, oh, you should totally wear that, don't wear that. You should totally get this job, don't get that job. They're sort of like a consultant. But the Bible will not let you do that. It won't let you do it. See, you have become one. You're a new creation when you come into that marriage relationship. There were two people and now there's one person and that person has never existed before. It's like a brand new uh, compound, scientific compound that has never existed before. You've become one. See, a covenant is a type of relationship that when broken, it will feel like you're tearing your very body in half. Think of the first time we ever hear about a covenant in the Bible. When was it? Does anybody know off the top of their heads? The first covenant ever. Abraham, I'm hearing something. Abraham. Uh, yeah, Abraham, Genesis chapter 15. First time we ever see a covenant. And what does, he do? what does he do? He takes animals and he cuts them in half. And he makes an aisle. And, he's, and, and, and he, he says, I'm gonna walk through the middle of this aisle holding up my end of the covenant to you. And if I don't hold it up, then let my body be like these animals, torn in two. If you know the story, it's, it's a beautiful story. God actually puts Abraham to sleep and God walks through the aisle and doesn't let him walk through the aisle. In other words, he says, in this covenant between humanity and Yahweh, if, you, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, let me be like these animals. But even if you don't hold up your end of the, the bargain, let me be like these animals, torn in two. You're like, the gospel's in Genesis? Yeah, the gospel's in Genesis 15. <laughs> See, 
marriage is the same. You've become one in this covenant and to break that covenant, it will be like tearing your very soul in half. I remember the first time I ever saw La La Land in the movie theater and I was amazed. Uh, I don't, I try not to endorse like media from the stage. So I'm like, now I'm now actually, right now I'm going, okay, is there anything in there that people, I'm gonna get emails about, maybe. Um, but I remember we went, to, we went to go see it. It was a snowstorm in Portland. So we walked down to the Fox Tower and we saw La La Land and I just wept. I just wept. Because it was not only just a beautiful movie and I like musicals and it was just like amazing, uh, but I wept because the message of the movie was very clear at the end. If a marriage doesn't help each person to kill it and to fulfill their dreams, then the marriage may not be worth it. And I cried, I just cried. Because for me, it was Babylon's values sneaking into covenant, redefining it as a partnership for the personal projects of those involved. Such a far cry from one flesh. See, Emily, this is my wife, Emily. Maybe wave at everybody. She is actually here. She exists. Yeah. Emily is not my partner. She's not my partner. Emily is my wife. There's a lot of language right now. Oh, my partner. What do you mean partner? You mean like your friend you have sex with? No, no, no. Emily is my wife. She's my wife. There's a covenant here. This isn't some sort of business venture that we have together. We're not roommates who have sex. We are in a covenant that looks like Christ in the church. In a marriage, you become one flesh. Now, we also see that a covenant does not run, run on chemistry. Covenant does not run on chemistry. See, our, our culture believes that chemistry is what a marriage needs to, to work. How is a marriage gonna function? It needs chemistry. How do you work sexually with each other? You should try it out. Make sure you have chemistry before you, I mean, it's for life. That's crazy. Does that, does that person give you all the emotional feels? Are they uh, exhilarating to be with? Do they like the same things as you? Are they your cheerleader? Do they, do they support you? Do you have chemistry? And without this sort of chemistry, the relationship is certainly doomed. In fact, I think many people believe today that marriage is a trap. Don't get married. Why would you get married? Uh, because even couples with incredible chemistry in the first few years will find out that the chemistry begins to wane. But notice in Ephesians chapter five, chemistry isn't even mentioned by Paul. Nowhere does it talk about your chemistry with your spouse. Instead, we learn that a covenant is almost the opposite of chemistry. See, what is a covenant? Here, here's the definition of a covenant. This is from Gary Brashears, but I'm stealing it from him today. A covenant is this, I will be to you as I should be, even if you are not to me as you should be. What it, think, think about that, well that's for Gary. Yeah, we can clap for Gary, because uh, that's his definition. But what I'm, what I'm saying is what, is, what does that come from? Oh, that's like Genesis 15. I will be to you as I should be, Abraham, even if you are not to me as you should be, Abraham. But we also get this definition right here in front of us. In fact, look at verse 21. Here it is, the key to covenant. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Before it gets to any of the controversial stuff, which we'll get to, it, Paul says this, submit to one another, why? Out of reverence for Christ. What this means is that you, in a marriage, each person is supposed to have such a source of love and identity that is filling them up to such a degree that they can give their spouse love and respect even when they are not giving it to, to you. See, if your spouse is the kind of person in your life that gives you all that you need, 
They're your everything. Then you will inevitably find yourself utterly destroyed when they fail to be what you needed them to be. When the chemistry wanes. But if you have a source that's beyond your spouse, then you will be able to give your spouse love and respect. You'll be able to cherish them, to serve them, even when they have not behaved in a way that is worthy of your love or your respect. What does he say? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. There are days when I don't feel like submitting to Emily because of how she's treated me and vice versa. Although, very, that's more, it doesn't really happen that often. Um, but there are, there are days where that's the case. Why do I submit to her? Oh, it's not out of reverence to her. It's out of reverence to Christ. See, there are marriages that they don't work because they have gotten into the marriage thinking, well, I like this person. I can see myself submitting to them and, and loving them and serving them until I can't, and then I can't. No, 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 Paul, won't. Paul doesn't let you do that. The Bible doesn't let you do that. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. A marriage doesn't run on chemistry. It runs on reverence to Christ. Do you see what this does? Covenant means the relationship's health is placed before the individual's preferences. Make no mistake, there's many of you who are in this room, I wanna get married. You should think about it. In a covenant, the relationship's health is placed before your preferences. See, chemistry is nice. It's a beautiful thing. Some of you are, are dating and, and you're feeling that electric feeling, that, those moments of passion. And it's like, no matter what the season is, it's spring in your relationship. And it, it's just incredible, right? It's just incredible. But you make no mistake, it's primarily your ego. You're, you're just amazed that that person is into you. <laughs> that that person is touching you of all people. They're kissing you. <laughs> it's about you. This is no place to stay. It's an amazing moment. But the marriage covenant, what it does is it draws you out of your ego and into service so that your love can be made real. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. What do we first learn? Marriage is about covenant. Now, in a way of transitioning, I want a, a Philip Yancey quote. This is gonna be really good, trust me. Here's what he says. Marriage strips away the illusions about sex pounded into us by the daily media. Few of us live with oversexed supermodels. We live instead with ordinary people, men and women who get bad breath, body odor, and unruly hair who menstruate and experience occasional pee on the seat, who have bad moods and embarrass us in public. We live with people who require compassion, tolerance, understanding, and an endless supply of forgiveness. So do our partners. Such is the ironical allure of sex. It brings us into a relationship that offers to teach us what we need far more, sacrificial love. See, secondly, marriage, Christian marriage, is sanctifying. Christian marriage is sanctifying. In other words, Christian marriage exists to make you holy. Look back down at your Bibles, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. To make her what? Holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle 
or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. Notice what's supposed to be happening in a marriage, in a Christian marriage. It's body care. It's body care. The feeding, the cleaning. It's it's taking care of those wrinkles and odors and stains. Do you get the metaphor? It's bathroom stuff. It's the washing and the clipping and the ironing, the scrubbing. See, this is the metaphor that Paul is using. What marriage does is it strips you from all of your self-protection. You are laid bare before that person, naked and unashamed in a good marriage. And that, has, that gives your partner the ability to join in with the cleaning and the scrubbing and the clipping of one's life so that they can help present you even more beautiful before God. Now, I've seen uh, some young Christians who believe that marriage is the reward of a well-navigated single life. They're like, if I just do this with wisdom, the, God will certainly reward me with the spouse. And then they get married, God willing, and then they are shocked by their own ugliness once they're in a real marriage. I, I, I had a friend of mine who when he got married, he told me, I thought I had all the fruits of the spirit until I got married. <laughs> You're like, yeah, that's what marriage does. See, you've never been stripped bare before somebody else who's intent on cleaning you as well. There's some spots you missed. <laughs> And so this is what marriage is for. Marriage exists to change you. Christian marriage is gonna change you. Uh, I've done many weddings, and at every single wedding I use this example. This is from Tim Keller, so all the credit to him. Um, but but I, I say, you know, marriage is like a rock tumbler. You put two uh, ugly, uneven, jaggedy rocks into the rock tumbler, and you spend time tumbling them together. And over time, they bump up against one another, and they begin to sand each other's rough edges off. And after a long period of time, they exit the rock tumbler more beautiful than they entered. That's marriage. Marriage will put demands on you that actually make you more beautiful, more serving, more loving, more self-sacrificing. And when you understand that this is what marriage is for, there will be a moment in your marriage where instead of fighting back, instead of trying to control the other person, you have this little thought that sneaks into the back door of your mind and it's this. What if this discomfort is actually sanctifying me? What if this is part of the clipping, scrubbing, ironing. That's what Christian marriage is for. You're going to (laughs) change. Lastly, the last thing that we learn in this passage is this, that Christian marriage is an image of Christ and the church. Look back down your Bibles. Verse uh, 32 says this, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. Christian marriages are supposed to act like a living art piece of what Christ's relationship with his church is like. 
So when people go, what is it like that Christ has a relationship with his church? We can go, well, look at our marriages. It's like that. And so all of what we've been talking about, the, the sanctifying, the covenant, all of what we've been talking about is to image Christ and his bride. Now, I've avoided one part of this passage that you probably haven't stopped thinking about since we first read it. Verse 22, look back down at your Bibles. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What does this mean? How dare I read something like this in church, no less. The husband is the head? How could you? Look, much ink has been spilled on a couple different ways to interpret this word head. It's like, what does that actually mean? In Greek, the word is kephale. Can you say that with me? Kephale. That's the word for head in Greek, kephale. And it's essentially translated two different ways, a source or a top. A source or a top. So uh, like the head of the river. What's the head of a river? The head of a river is the source of that river. That's where all the water is coming from for that river. So that's the source definition. Or kephale can also mean top, like the top of a structure, the head of a structure. Now typically, conservatives love the definition of top. Why? Because it, it, it speaks to authority. That's right. Men should lead homes. They should take leadership. But liberals love the definition of source. It just sounds nicer. I think that's, I, I think that's what it kind of we come down to. It just seems nicer. Source, that sounds a little bit better. What does headship actually mean? What does it mean? Well, really, no matter how you cut it, whether it's source or top, it means leadership. It means final say. Now, maybe you're beginning to squirm in your seat. Maybe you're even thinking, I thought I liked this church. Hang on. <laughs> Maybe you're there and you're nodding in agreement. That's right, Alex. Preach it. <laughs> See, conservatives read this and they go, leadership, yes. That means, and I literally had somebody tell my wife this at one point. This is what a, a man's role in a marriage is. He's the one who's steering the ship while the wife gets to sunbathe on the deck. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, and then liberals, they are thinking, I'm not sure that I actually really want Paul to define and form my marriage anymore after this. What I want you to see is that the Bible will not allow you to define leadership. Paul defines leadership by pointing to Christ. There's been a great leader, it's Christ. And because of his example, husbands, you are not allowed to use your leadership to serve yourself because that is not what Christ did with his leadership. Verse 25, look back down. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So husbands, your authority, your final say is only as valid as you're laying down your life. And wives, what does verse 22 say again? Verse 22 says this, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, 
here's the key phrase, as you do to the Lord. In other words, why do you submit to the Lord? Really think about it. Why do you submit to God? Dare I say that for most of us, it's because we've been wooed. We've been won over by his love. We've been absolutely taken by his affection for us. So what does submission look like to someone who has won you over through love? It looks like opening yourself up to being loved and guided by that person. Now, maybe you could read this and you could think, well, does that actually put the power of the relationship in the wife's hands? Because the husband, I mean, the wives are just called to submit. The, the husband, not only has he in verse 21 been also called to submit, but he has to lay, he has to die for his wife. Hang on. There is a time for a husband to overrule his wife in final say. And it is when his wife is making a decision or acting in a way that would hurt her or the marriage. Did I just make that up? Where did I get that from? Genesis chapter three. It was Eve who was deceived in Genesis chapter three by the snake. You guys are like giving me this face like I either hate you or I'm just, I don't, I don't. If I move one way, maybe my girlfriend will think I'm agreeing with him. Okay, so just nod with me for a second. In Genesis chapter three, it was Eve who was deceived, am I right? Yeah. Yes, correct, okay, okay. Because, why was she deceived? Because Adam wasn't there to question what the serpent was inviting her to do. Who was held responsible for Eve being deceived? Adam. So God goes to Adam, why does he go to Adam? Because Adam didn't use his headship correctly and God held him accountable. Now, this can sound incredibly narrow, and especially to women who have had abusive relationships or who are not married, this sounds insane. But for women in this room who have had a marriage with a man whom they can completely trust, they know that this works. And not only does this work, this is what we were made for as men and women. There's something deeply profound in a man who is generally, generally, I know there's probably a lot of ladies in the room who are stronger than me. Generally speaking, physically stronger and possibly even more able to move through society with ease, laying his power down for the sake of his wife and children, choosing to serve her in the same way Christ served the church. It's profound. Taking responsibility and accountability for his decisions and for her decisions before God. It's so powerful. Now, practically, how does this work? Let's get to some practicals. Because maybe you're thinking, well, that must mean that the husband doesn't have to change dirty diapers and that he's gonna be the one who mows the lawn and the wife is the one who gets to stay home and cook all the meals. No. Stop it. No. <laughs> The Bible does not give you details. It doesn't allow you to import your cultural baggage onto it. What the Bible does is it gives you a principle and the principle is Christ as the model of leadership. So you better figure out how to work this out culturally in your own marriage in a way that the wife feels loved and served like Christ has loved and served the church and the husband feels respected. 
you better figure it out. See, unless the husband feels respected and the wife feels loved, your gender roles are not working. That's what this is saying. Many people, they come into marriage and they go, in my family, men did this and the women did this. So that's how it's gonna be in our marriage. Oh, I'm sorry, have you not read Genesis chapter two? It said that you left your family and you started a whole new family with your wife. It doesn't really matter what the men in your family did or what the women did, you're a new family. You've become one flesh. And so it's time for you to find out how does this woman in this family feel served and loved and how does this man in this family feel honored and respected? See, when you're single, you have all kinds of opinions about gender roles. Trust me, you'll flush a majority of them by the time you get married. Because when you get married, you don't have a, there's no philosophy of like, well, I think this, and I have these ideals about this. There's just, we need to make money so that we can live in this house and we can provide for these children. (laughs) So let's figure out how to do that in a way that you feel loved and I feel respected. How does this, how, trust me, when I was at Fox, I had all kinds of ideas about the way that this should work and my marriage is so much better than I could have imagined back then uh, because I didn't take my own advice. Um, so how does this work in my marriage? Well, for those of you who know Emily, do you think that I get to just do whatever I want? <laughs> no. Um, for those of you who do not know Emily, no. Let me, let me just say this. I, I do feel like I, I need to say this. Anytime that I personally have acted on my own in my marriage and making a decision for us as a family, or I overruled my wife on a decision, which I couldn't think of a moment when that's actually happened, I have significantly regretted it. Profoundly regretted it. But many times that I have trusted her gut on a matter, be it family or financial or career, it has been a much better success because we're in a covenant and we become one flesh. And what Paul is setting us up for is a relationship where we put the needs of the other before our own. Look, my wife and I, we argue, we debate, we, we listen to one another, we heat up and we cool down constantly, but a marriage can work if we have this framework. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the first command. With this context in marriage, You can have a marriage where you say, I'm not submitting to you because you're worth submitting to. I'm submitting to you because Christ is worth submitting to. And I'm not loving you because you're so worthy of love all the time. I'm choosing to act lovingly towards you because Christ is worth submitting to. And that is how a marriage is designed to reflect the love of Christ for us. That's what he did for us. Isn't that beautiful? So now you're wondering, how do I get it? (laughs) how do I get it for the single people in the room who want to be married how do you get ready for being married I have one thought for you this evening don't look for the right person become the right person don't look for the right person become the right person see you could spend all your time in search of someone who matches the resume you have made up in your mind But know that when you have found that person, if you find them, and when the wedding bells ring, you will have spent the past years sharpening your preferences 
when Christian marriage was designed to put another's preferences before your own. This will be something you have to unlearn. See, your focus as a single person who wants to be married should be on getting good at submission to Christ. Because that's the best thing for your future spouse. If you're in training for, I'm gonna get really good at submitting to Christ so that when I get into a marriage, I'm really good at submitting to him and loving when I don't feel like it and serving when I don't feel like it and caring and clipping and washing and scrubbing when I don't feel like it. That's the best thing for your future spouse. See, at some level, and you don't know this until you get married, at some level, you will always marry the wrong person. See, you, you may find the person who has just the right facial silhouette, which I did. You, you may find the person with just the right interests and the right job prospects and the right family, but at some point in your marriage, you will discover something and it will bug you. It will drive you crazy. You won't be able to not mention it. my wife's was in our first year of marriage, uh, she said, you know, I just have to say this. Every time you stand to brush your teeth or to wash your hands or to do the dishes, you stand with your feet so close together. <laughs> she, she's like, how about shoulder width apart? Like, your feet are just so close together. <laughs> and I'm like, so what? I got you. When you find that thing, it will stick out like a pebble in a boot. And hopefully, with the grace of the Spirit of God, you will realize that marriage wasn't about finding the right person without any flaws, but about giving a grace to another person and learning to love them even with all of their flaws. Stanley Hauerwas, he says this, we never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a little while and he or she will change. For marriage means we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary challenge of marriage is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. And all the married people in the room said, amen. <laughs> Look, the Bible does not say as a Christian you will have a perfect marriage. The Bible sets a standard, Christ and the church. And through confrontations, and through coming back together, through pain and difficulty, you will begin to move past ego, and you will begin to see the real person. And you will begin to even shape that real person with your love. And when you understand this, you will love your spouse not because they're lovely, but to make them lovely because that's what Christ did for us. Jesus was the perfect spouse. 
He was the one who loved us, not because we were so worthy of love, but to make us lovely through his love. And this is why Paul says in verse 32, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you, or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website.